Brother Gail Clayton and I used to talk about uh, just how God is at work. Gail was always good at reminding me of um, certain things that I needed to be reminded of from time to time. And um, one of those things was he, he, he would use the illustration of a parade. And, you know, Christmas season, Christmas parades, well, all that are getting started. And, and we see a parade like, you know, we're going to stand up at the corner there in downtown Roxburgh when the Christmas parade rolls by. And we're going to see each float, each entry in the parade come by one at a time, right? And, and we just kind of watch them in sequence as they come through. And Gail always reminded me of how God doesn't see the parade of life. He doesn't see the parade of time sequentially. He doesn't see one thing after another after another the same way we do as we are limited by 24 hours, 365 days, years. God sees it, the whole picture. He sees beginning to end as one thing. And we, we can't see that. He sees it that way. So I was reading this week about world history. Okay, so think about key events in world history sequentially. One timeline I was looking back went back thousands and tens of thousands of years to when when human beings first domesticated goats and dogs. And how huge a deal it was that we domesticated those out, those things. Now, once again, looking through the biblical perspective, I'm thinking, well, God said that we're to have dominion. So we're going to take care of that, right? We're going to train dogs and goats and, and whatever else that we need to train. But that was one of the events on a timeline. The other event that was so significant was the creation of the printing press. I mean, it changed the world, literally, when the printing press was invented. So we could think of a lot of different events like that. But just as we sung just now, while we don't necessarily know the sequence of events that will come, we know how the story ends, right? And we look at that in the reality of what we find in the scriptures with these significant parts of that big story. And in the story of God's redemptive plan, Second Samuel chapter 5 is one of those huge events. But it's not sequentially just... One, then two, then three, then four. So what I mean by that is this. Social media is one of those things where, you know, it's a love-hate. More hate, really, than it is love. Um, I heard I heard we were at a concert Friday night, and I heard someone say, the only thing this, good, this phone is good for is a GPS and a flashlight. And I had to agree with that. Um, Susan doesn't really like the GPS part of it. She still likes the printed maps, but... Again, that's going back further than we need to. So, but social media will pull up once in a while on a Facebook page this collage. You know what a collage is, right? It's a collection of photographs that are not necessarily in any particular order. They just give a picture of a life or a picture of a season. It's not in order. It's just, here's a big picture that reminds us of a lot of things that have gone on that really could be encapsulated in, in one lifetime, right? Or in one person's story. Well, that's what we have in Second Samuel chapter 5, is a collage. It's, it's a collection. These things that happen here 
I believe, happen over the span of, in one sense, 20, 25, 30 years, in another sense, in the whole span of God's redemptive story. That's what we have in, in this chapter here. David has been waiting a long time. And the wait is finally over. It's been, commentators tell us, anywhere from 20, even 25 years since he was anointed as that shepherd boy to be shepherd over God's people. It's been a long, long time since Samuel called all of Jesse and his boys together and said, don't look at the outward appearance. That's not what God's looking at. Don't look at his height, the height of his stature. It says that the Lord looks at the heart while we look at the outward appearance. Well, God was looking at the heart of that young boy. And it was there that this story kind of begins in our understanding of it as Jesse's youngest son is called out to shepherd God's people. And what we see unfolding in David's life is what Hannah had prayed and prophesied even back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In that amazing prayer when she prayed there before the Lord and said, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength, Hannah prayed, to his anointed, to his king. She said he will exalt the horn of his anointed. So, Second Samuel chapter 5 marks this turning point in God's redemptive history. God, up until this point in time, has dwelt in tents among his people as his people have moved. But now God gives his people a city as their capital. And over time, they will build a, a place of worship there where God will from now on identify his presence with this place called Jerusalem. And so it's, it's a massive change in, in what we see happening here. And everything in here, while it's about David, is not about David. It points us to Jesus. David's perfect son who is to come. Even his weaknesses, even the weaknesses of David that are pointed to in this, point us to the perfection of Christ, right? And, and so that's, that's how we read this. So it's, it, it's, it's not a long chapter, but there's a lot in it, and I'm going to just kind of read it part by part as we work our way through it, okay? So let's start there in 2 Samuel 5, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. Excuse me, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. So let's begin with the king's reign as he will be the shepherd and prince over God's people. Now, this is David's third anointing, okay? 
So we saw we saw the first one back in First Samuel 16 when, as again, as as a youth, ruddy and good looking as he was, he was still young. But God was looking at his heart, and there he was anointed by Samuel to be the king one day, a lot of days, <laughs> a lot of miles, a lot of years, a lot of caves, a lot of hiding, a lot of running for his life, but a lot of trusting. A lot of being patient. A lot of just waiting on God to do God's thing in God's time. He was anointed first there. Later on, he was anointed for the second time in Second Samuel chapter 2 by the people of Judah. By his own tribe, if you will, by his own family. And the kingdom is divided at that point in time. But now, finally, he's anointed by all of Israel. And it's not that all of Israel comes to Hebron. It's not like... You know, two or three million people show up. It's the elders who come representing the nation that come and meet with David at this place. So they come. These elders come and notice what they say. First off, they make an acknowledgement of, I believe, a sacred relationship. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. That's an amazing comment for them to make. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, I believe one thing is meant by that is what God had commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 17 about his king. He had given provision for a king like he would raise up. And the provision for that king in Deuteronomy 17 says in verse 15, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So in one sense, these people are talking about a blood relationship, if you will, in kindred relationship to Abraham. David, we acknowledge that even though we come from different tribes, we are the same family under Abraham, under that covenant that God established. So you are our flesh and bone in the sense that my sisters are are my flesh and bone. In that relationship, they're talking about that, but I think there's more to it. And the terminology there is significant. There's, this expression is in, is in one sense, in my mind, and commentators would agree, goes all the way back to Genesis and Adam and Eve. And a sacred relationship that comes there in mutual submission, mutual trust. And it carries it forward to this picture that we have in the New Testament of Jesus being the head over his body and we being his bride. And he being responsible to care for us, to nurture us and provide for us as we submit to him. So I think there's even a bigger picture going on here. It's a statement of trust. We are your flesh and bone, David. We are putting our trust in you. We are looking for you to care for us, David, as you would for your own body. It's a statement of submission. We are giving ourselves to you, David. You lead us. We will serve along beside you. And so it's a statement of submission, a statement of trust. It's an amazing picture of the relationship that God wants his people to have with those that he puts over them as the prince and as the king. And they recognize David has this sacred responsibility. And I'm not sure, nobody knows really exactly where they're quoting. They're not quoting a specific verse, if you will, that has been set up to here. But is there anything more clear in the Bible than the role of a shepherd and our need for that as sheep? So they come and they say, we know the Lord has said to you, you shall be shepherd over my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. 
Well, God has certainly implied that, even if he may not have said it explicitly to David prior to this time. But here's what's going on. And we'll see this in just a minute with Jerusalem. David is fulfilling in one sense everything that has come before them that was incomplete. Here's what I mean by that. When Moses was saying, it's time for me to pass on, for you to choose someone to come, or for God rather to choose someone, and Joshua would be raised up. Joshua, it says, would go out before them and come in before them in Numbers twenty-seven seventeen, And you shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. Joshua was to be a shepherd to God's people. In Psalm 78, David recounts that that's exactly what God did with him. He took David, it says, from following the nursing ewes and he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them. It's what the prophet said the perfect son of David would do one day. The servant who would come will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead with them young. Is that not exactly what was prophesied in Matthew that had come earlier in Micah? That this son of Bethlehem, David, would be the father generationally? Of the perfect son of David who would follow? Oh, you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And in John 10, that shepherd said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So the people recognized David's responsibility to shepherd. They also recognized his responsibility to not be like the other kings of the nations. He's not called a king in this context. He's called a prince who rules under the authority of his king, God. And so his role as king is understood within the context of that proper relationship. So David is given this sacred responsibility to shepherd and serve as prince over people, over the people of Israel. And the elders came and they anointed him. But it says in verse 3 that David is the one who made a covenant with them at Hebron. And as a picture of this covenant that God made with Abraham, the superior making a, a covenant with the lesser, David in one sense is superior to these as he has been called out and anointed as their leader. And David basically says, I'm going to cut a covenant. I'm going to agree before the Lord, it says, with God as witness, I accept this responsibility and pledge myself to it. And if it is the true sense of cutting a covenant, as they did throughout the Old Testament, then animals were cut in half and laid aside. And David said, may I be as one of these animals if I don't fulfill this obligation to serve as your shepherd and prince. So David takes that responsibility. It's an amazing picture of the king stepping into reign as the shepherd and prince of God's people. So how do we apply even these first few verses here? One is a personal application. This King David is a picture of King Jesus who is to come. And whether you recognize it or not, he is the sovereign ruler over your life. Every human being that draws breath has or will. Will one day bow the knee and profess that Jesus is king. So whether you follow him or submit to him or not. He is king. And I invite you, the Word invites you. The Holy Spirit may be the one inviting you through the Word 
to submit yourself to him, to trust him. The Bible calls it being born again. Turning from your sin and yourself and in humble submission to Christ saying, I acknowledge what the word says about me, that I've fallen short of God's glory. That I've rebelled against my king and my creator. And so I invite you to trust in Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior. But there's a corporate application here too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that you, talking to the church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul makes it clear that we are that body of Christ. We are members of his body, it says in Hebrew, in, in Ephesians 5. Earlier in Ephesians, he says that he's going to fulfill all things in Christ and even pointing to the church who is the fullness of him who fills all in all, Paul says in Colossians. So if you've trusted in Christ, then the next step in that and the next part of that relationship is to humbly and joyfully come into fellowship with the body of Christ of whom Christ is the head. You cannot be rightly related to Christ and not be related to his body. I've heard people say that, and so have you. But that is a biblical impossibility. You can't. Any more than can you can lop your head off and still be healthy. So I invite you. Come in and be a part of his body. That's who we are, and that's who he is. He is our shepherd, and he is our king. So that's the king's reign. Look at what comes next. The king's city. And what I see in this is so much, in fact... When I first laid out the plans for the sermon series, I I had thought we would take another week after today and just talk about the significance of Jerusalem as a city and as a place and as a principle throughout the Bible. And we may still do that. We're not going to do that next week, but we may still still do that. So we're still going to look at this. In verse 6, follow along with me. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem... Against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. (laughs) Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So again, this is probably sequential, this portion of it, as David comes to this place. But as David comes to this physical place, there's so much more going on here that's important for us to recognize. Now, geographically, Jerusalem, while it is the center of biblical history, is a geographic location here that's ideal for being the capital. Of the United Kingdom. Of the United Kingdom there of Israel. It's in between Judah and the northern tribes. No one has really laid claim to it yet. And so it's a perfect place for a capital. Why is Washington, D.C. the capital of America? Like, why is it not someplace like Memphis or, you know, there in the middle of the country? 
And I'm just, you know, thinking out loud here. Jerusalem is there in the center. It's in a perfect place. There's over 800 references to the place of Jerusalem in the Bible. 800. Most of them, 630 in the ESV, are in the, in the Old Testament. And then the rest in the New Testament. So it's a massively important place. It's a massively important concept. Because it's important that we see it not just geographically, but biblically in the total picture of God's redemptive story. Prior to this, the only time Jerusalem in itself has been mentioned, well, it's early in Genesis where Melchizedek, the king of Salem or the king of Jerusalem, is mysteriously raised up, it seems, out of nowhere. And there's kind of a a foreshadowing there. But in Joshua's work, as he brings the people into the promised land, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is mentioned several times as places where those tribes and those nations that the Israelites were to drive out, where they were, and by the way, they did not do it. They did not do it. Jerusalem is mentioned earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when it says that David took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Don't ask me about that. I don't know how David carried that head around with him for some 20 years and then brings it into Jerusalem. I believe that's what he did, but I don't know how. Because again, 1 Samuel giving us the account of David slaying Goliath and taking the head and then throwing in that little point for us just, I wonder what in the world he means by that, that David carried that head around with him for all those years and finally took it to Jerusalem. I don't know. And we don't want to get caught in the weeds there and miss, miss what's really important. Here's what's really important about this. I said that Jerusalem is a temporal mind. By that I mean in time and space, it is fulfillment of God's promise. What do I mean by that? Turn back over to Genesis chapter 15. When we're talking about cutting a covenant... And God makes this covenant, cuts this covenant with, with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, I'm just going to read in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. God had promised some thousand years before that his people would have this place. And now they're getting it. So God has made a promise in time. And David comes to Jerusalem fulfilling that promise. He is doing what Israel and Joshua failed to do. So in the sense, he is the, the more perfect Joshua. And he comes acting out within God's time frame and according to God's purposes and accomplishing God's promise there. So the city is taken in fulfillment of that promise. But there's more going on here too. Because there's a promise that looks forward, not just to time when David would come, but time that I referenced earlier in Isaiah chapter 2, in all of eternity. Because this Jerusalem, this picture, 
is a picture of where one day God will come and dwell with his people. So it is a place of promise, but it's more than that. It's a place of eternal promise. You remember it, do you not? Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. It hasn't been that long since we were here. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. A promise in eternity. That refers back to this picture of God's presence with his people. And yes, here David comes. Fulfilling that promise in time. But looking forward to that promise that's going to be filled in all of eternity. But he comes and carries out a military operation against this stronghold. And it is a massively strong place even in David's day. It's referred to as the stronghold of Zion. Commentators say that's a a part within the city. And the the milo or the milo that's mentioned there in verse 9 is this natural earthenworks place, many of them say, that was a natural impediment to those who would want to come and take the city. So David comes in and takes this city, and he does it in in an army ranger kind of a way. Special forces is at work here, it seems. Now there's disagreement, as David says, come, and, and he encourages soldiers, his men, to go up, it says, the water shaft. I'm not going to take the time to talk about the water supply into Jerusalem and how it got there and how it was protected, but they seem to come in through the water shaft and take the city. And, and it's amazing. Some of the crassness of the culture comes across here, too, okay? We didn't develop crassness in our culture. It seems we've perfected it, but we didn't develop it here. So the Jebusites refer in a very derogatory way to David and his men by saying that, you know what, our blind and our lame will defend this city. We don't need our good soldiers to do it. You can't. You can't take this city, David, is what they're telling him. David, in turn, uses that same language on them as he's talking to his men and then referring to them. And it becomes a colloquialism, it seems, some kind of expression. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And it's interesting because one particular commentator I use referred to this, I felt like, in a, in a culturally le- relevant way. Um, and again, David, David is God's anointed, but he's a, he's a child of his time. And here we hear him using the language of his time. And he uses it in a derogatory way. There's no way to take the edge off of this. A lot of commentators try to do it. Well, he meant this. He meant, no, I think he meant exactly what it says. It's not a term that would be something we'd want to teach our children to use. One commentator said, there's no lack of ingenuity in interpretations designed to soften the language and let David off the hook of being discriminatory toward the disadvantaged. But maybe it's just better simply to accept that David was a child of the crude Iron Age culture. 
with built-in prejudices and insensitivities. But then that same commentator goes on to say, notice how the son of David does well what he did badly. And by that, here's what I mean. When Jesus comes a thousand years later and enters this same city and is proclaimed king, the blind and the lame play an important part in that too. But that perfect son of David, King Jesus, comes and heals those blind and those lame. And he cleans out the temple where they're prevented to come in and worship. So, that same commentator said it took a thousand years with considerable help from the prophets to transform attitudes toward the disabled from denigration to dignity. It's probably not a bad little application point there. But here's something I want us to see. Regardless of opposition, how many opponents has David had over these 20 or 25 years? One after the other after the other. Regardless of opposition, God's promises are fulfilled. And regardless of time, God's promises are filled. All those promises, Second Corinthians says, uh, tells us, are yes and amen in Jesus. And it says in verse 10 there that David built that city all around. And it says he became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. From the time he was a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep till now, God has been with him. But here, this phrase, the God of hosts, the God of heaven's armies, the God of all of the massive armaments and majesty and power of David is with his king, with his anointed. The term is used for the very first time in reference to David's family in 1 Samuel. When it says that Hannah and her husband went up to worship the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. I think it's significant that it comes again here. And so the commander of heaven's armies is with David. And he's greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, is with him. Notice what comes next. Verse 11. We have the king's house. And a picture of influence in the world and greatness. Greatness that benefits even the people of Israel. Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So in verse 10, David becomes greater and greater for the Lord of hosts is with him. And there in verse 12... David knows that he is the king. He is established by God over Israel. And he is exalted for the sake of the people of Israel. And again, here's the collage. Because in sequence, Hiram really does not become king over Tyre until David has been sitting on the throne for some 20 years, it seems. So the timetable here is difficult to put sequentially. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, will play a significant role in Solomon's life, good and bad, and provide materials for the building up of the temple of that place of worship, not just for David's house. Here's what we can take from this, though. David is no longer this Bedouin, radical, ragtag leader with a group of 300 men running around in the wilderness. He is a king over a united nation. In a well-defended city. 
And the neighbors are taking notice. And this seafaring country of Tyre, who must have access through the trade routes that come through this land, come through Israel, recognizes the importance of having David as a friend and not as an enemy. And so he comes to David and brings gifts to David, cedar, and those who can use it and build up David's house. And so David recognizes his standing before God and his standing before the nations, even as he's being represented there as God's representative before the king of Tyre. His influence in the world. But who's the beneficiary of that influence? It tells us here that it was a blessing that God's people, for the sake of God's people, David is being raised up and put in this place of prominence. It's important to see that, that David knew that that was the reason he was serving, not for himself. What a picture that is of selfless service. He recognizes that the promises of God have come about in his life, and he's in this place, on this throne, not for David's sake, but for the sake of God's people. It reminds us again of his perfect son who is going to come, who did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's also a reminder, I believe, that God's promise to Abraham, that in you, Abraham, and in your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And this blessing starts right there. What a beautiful picture it is. The king's house. Well, what's up with the next verse? Verse 13. Well, it's king's family. And this picture of the king's strength in the eyes of the world, but... Flaws, potential compromise in the eyes of God. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Naphig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, an elephant. We've never heard of any of these guys except for Solomon. And that's the one we probably will need to remember, right? Remember last week, the loaded gun on the table? Hmm, that name may come up later. Well, here it is. In the eyes worlds, here's what, here's what the narrator is telling us. There's no commentary on this. There's no statement about it, good or bad. Here's what's going on there. David's city is established. David's house is built. David's family is growing. David ain't going nowhere. He is here to stay. That's the picture that we have before us. And in the eyes of the world, these concubines and wives and these children is a picture of a strong, worldly, earthly kingdom. There's lots of heirs there. There's lots of people who can come and take the throne. It's a picture of strength. It's a picture of being provisioned and ready for tomorrow. That's how the world sees it. And that's valid historically. But, but, God had said in Deuteronomy 17 that his king was not to take for himself many wives. David's a great king. We could all want leaders like David in some ways. But we must recognize that David is not the leader we need. 
There's cracks in his character. There's flaws that are ultimately going to bring down his kingdom, and it'll be an ugly train wreck mess. But not yet. <laughs> not yet. There's, there's still a lot of good to see, okay? The king's family. Strength in the eyes of the world, but costly compromise in God's eyes. And notice how this chapter ends. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. They really didn't need to search hard. All right, It's not like they had to send out reconnaissance to figure out where he's at. And just like the king of Tyre, this, this Bedouin king who's been on the run now all of a sudden must be acknowledged. We cannot ignore him anymore. He's a powerful king with a powerful country and a well-positioned, powerful city capital. And so the Philistines, man, when are we going to be rid of these guys? Well, they'll only be mentioned one more time after this. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it. And went down to the stronghold. So in, they come and approach this city and David goes to this place that is called the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come, it says in verse 18, and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. Verse 19, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal, Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. In verse 22, the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. These are slow learners, okay? You see that, right? They came up again in verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. The king's victories. This king is the defender who does what God's anointed king is supposed to do, which, defend, which is defend his people and defeat his enemies. And that's what we see him doing. And we see him doing it, and here's the important part, relying on God's power. This is what the king does. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. It says in Psalm 2. And this is an illustration of what went on then and continues to go on today. As nations plot and rage against the Lord and his anointed. And the Lord sits on his throne and laughs in derision at them. The psalmist says. As for me... I have put my king on my holy hill, God says. Yes, that's what he does here in 2 Samuel 5. But points us to the one who will come later. The nation's rage and the people's plot. I mean, this is a persistent enemy. They have been coming time and time and time and time again. I don't know if they're still just trying to get revenge for Goliath or what. But it's about to end here. 
a persistent enemy. And the king is prayerful. We need to note this about David constantly about him, which is so starkly different from Saul. David inquired of the Lord and got an answer. He does it there in verse 19. He does it again in verse 23. David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered. So there's a presence of the enemy. There's a prayerful king. And a powerful God. The two terms that are used here are, man, they're, they're strong. And I, and, I, and I mean that. Go up, I will give them into your hand, God says. And then the description of how the Lord did that. It says there, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. The word Baal Perazim literally means a dam bursting or broke through. It's like this massive Grand Coulee Dam breaks through and washes away everything in front of it. Nothing can stand in front of it. That's what God did in that battle. Broke through and destroyed the Philistines. Washed them away. But yet uses David... As the means for that. And then it says in verse 23, when David inquired of the Lord, God did it differently this time. And here's the Lord of hosts saying, my army will march. You will hear them coming through the tops of the trees. That's awesome. And when you hear them, then you step out. Then you go out. Because the Lord has gone out before you to strike them down. Literally smite them, kill them, destroy them. So here is the Lord of hosts and his army. Breaking through, washing away, crushing down and destroying the enemies of his anointed king. You do not want to be on the wrong side in this battle. You do not want to be one of those who rage against the king's anointed. And notice what happened there in verse 21. (laughs) I love this. The Philistines left their idols there. Oh, man. I imagine they're dropping their swords. They're dropping their spears. They're dropping their shields. And oh, by the way, they're pulling their little gods out of their pockets and dropping them on the battlefield, too. And just like the Philistines thought that they had accomplished something when they were to pick up the ark and carry it away back in 1 Samuel and take it before their god Dagon, who then falls down before it twice with his head lopped off and his hands dropped off. Here the army of God picks up the gods and the idols of the enemy. And the chronicler tells us in 1 Chronicles, they left their gods there and David gave command and they were burned. That's, by the way, what God said in Deuteronomy they were to do with the idols. This is, this is a wholesale defeat, right? Smoke coming up off the battlefield. Oh, wait. That's a common theme. In Revelation chapter 19. Hmm. After this, I heard what seemed... To be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are just and true. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her morality and has avenged the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever. I don't understand that fully. 
But one of the means of praise and worship for God for all of eternity will be the picture of His wrath being poured out on His enemies. And we will praise Him forever as the smoke of His enemies goes up. I don't know how the smoke of hell and the glory of heaven are going to interact. But I believe they will. And it will be the reason we praise our God. Smoke came up off that battlefield in 2 Samuel 5. And it will come up off that battlefield in Revelation. So what do we do with this? I've already given you one. Submit to this king and this shepherd. Number two, like David, let's just wait, folks. Regardless of opposition, regardless of time, God will accomplish his promises. We hold to that, do we not? We hold to it. Thirdly, let's look forward to this city. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. One of the marks of faith in the book of Hebrews was those who look forward to that city whose builder and foundation is God. That holy city, that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Faith looks forward to that city. And I guess the question is, is that our heart's desire? I mean, are we longing for that? Do we yearn for that? Listen, we read these passages at gravesides all the time. But we live by this, do we not? This isn't just comfort for the grave. David was living in the midst of his battles and in the midst of all of his situational struggles, looking forward to God fulfilling his promises. And church, we're called to do that too. We look forward to that day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that's what drives us forward. It will be a place where those who defy the anointed of God will be dealt with by God. We trust in Him. Revenge is His, and we just wait for that. It's coming. It's coming, church, but not yet. Not yet. And in the meantime, the fourth point of application that you have there is while we're in this world, and while we're waiting, man, we live in a... The the term Philistine has been used as a picture throughout the ages of those who just defy God and stand up against Him. So the nation of the Philistines was defeated, but the nature of the Philistine lives on, right? And it's our spiritual enemy. And we still wage war against him, and as we do, we are trusting in our victorious king. Here's, here's, here's what I was thinking about in that regard. Um, I, I love studying World War II. And, and I think it's generally accepted that the end of the war really began on June 6th of 1944 with D-Day. When we established the beachhead there in Europe. That was, that was really the beginning of the end. But oh my, that war was not over. Not, not yet. Six months later, November leading up into December... The German forces and the Allied forces, primarily American forces, would meet in, in what, what we know now as the Battle of the Bulge. Listen, almost 90,000 Americans would fall during that battle. 
90,000. 19,000 killed, almost 48,000 wounded, almost 23,000 missing. But what if, think about it, what if we could, you know, somehow or other hop in our back to the future car? You need to see that movie if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, another one of my movie references. All right, go back and watch Back to the Future. If we could just hop in our car and get back there into the city of Bastogne or one of those foxholes where those guys' feet are freezing off, literally, and just say, guys, here's the end. Here's that parade, ticker tape parade down New York. V.E. Day is coming. Keep fighting. We know it's hard, but just keep fighting. Because we win, right? If we could go back and tell them that, do you think it would give them heart? think it would give them encouragement? think it would say, okay, it's worth fighting through because we know the end now. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look... Not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing away. But the things that are eternal, the things that are unseen, rather, are eternal. Let's pray. Father, fix our eyes on Jesus this morning as the author and perfecter of our faith. As the king who is anointed and sits on the throne. As the one who one day will judge the nations in holy wrath, but at the same time extends his arms, saying, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Father, thank you for this picture, this collage of your king and his kingdom and of the king that is coming. Lord, I pray that someone would trust in Jesus as their king today, and I pray that we who are yours, Lord, would resubmit ourselves to his reign and rule. That with joy and gladness, Lord, we would trust him. Recognizing that the end is accomplished already. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen.